So a friend of mine was uh, watching one of the tapes and she suggested that I smile into the, uh, into the computer while this uh, few minutes of, are you there, you're not there, you're started, you're not started. So here I am smiling into a blank screen and there we go, all right. <laughs> oh, well, you know what? Those of you that know me know that I really like the idea that I'm partially Irish. And uh, I, I very much love the culture of, the, of Great Britain, uh, having spent so many years there during my formidable years uh, of my life. I love everything about England. I love the, the countryside, the little villages, the fact that you can you know, spend the night in a house that's 200 years old. Um, but one of my favorite things about it, and you will be a little surprised, I think, is the pub. And, and, and it's because a pub is not uh, what you think of in, in terms of like a bar or a, a place of, you know, heavy alcohol consumption, although, of course, they do that, do that at, at a pub. But in a, in a community, it's almost like a community center. And uh, it's very interesting to me that in Ireland, because in the community center of the pubs, there were so many arguments going on, arguments about... Uh, who, who was the best at this, and who had the, the, the world's record on that, and who had the most of these, and the, and, the, and the largest of that, and the deepest of this, and whatever. There were so many arguments going on in their community center of the local pub that Guinness, the, the actual maker of the, the beer, Guinness, published the Guinness Book of World Records. And its purpose was to stop all the arguing, arguing that was going on in, as they would sit around and have their, their pint of Guinness, and they'd be arguing about, where, what's the tallest building? Oh, who, who ate the most whatever? So where's the biggest whatever? They, they started publishing the, the, the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, the whole thing, by the way, did you know Stony Brook is in the Guinness Book of World Records? I want you all to go home. I want you to type in Stony Brook Christian Schools, Guinness Book of World Records, and figure out what we have the world record for. Ha, ha, ha. Got you on something. Anyway. Um, I, I use that as an introduction because in this chapter, James is going he's gonna shift from what he was talking about earlier, that is controlling the tongue, and now he's gonna shift his attention to how do you control your mind and ultimately achieve peace? How do you solve arguments? How do you how do you stop fighting about things? How do you how do you choose what's wise? Um, Paul actually asked that same question in First Corinthians chapter one when he says, where is the wise man? Where is the wise person? And then in that, in that uh, passage, he goes on to say, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Um, Solomon asserts uh, early on in the book of Proverbs where, where you find wisdom. And I want you to turn there, Proverbs chapter 3. We're not turning to the Guinness Book of World Records. We're, we're turning into God's word to find out how do we get wisdom? How do, how, do, how do we know that we know? Proverbs chapter 3, starting in verse number 13. Remember that James is a companion book to the book of Proverbs, very practical. He says in verse 13, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways, again, we're talking about wisdom, are pleasant ways, and all of her paths are peace. 
She, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Now, James has already told us in chapter 1, you looked over there in verse number 5, that if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. This, this text is going to talk about how do we gain wisdom? Who is wise? Who is understanding? Who is the person that gets it from God's perspective? So let's look at verse 13 of chapter 3 and, and ask some of these same questions and get some answers out of James. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. I'm going to stop right there. Remember, we, we've, we've encapsulated the idea of James by saying, don't tell me what you believe, show me. Don't give me words, don't give me creeds, don't give me doctrines, don't give me a long list of things that you say you believe. You show me. Let me see it in your behavior, in your conduct. How, how are we going to know who's wise, James is asking. What's the proof that someone is seeking wisdom? Well, he uses a few words here in verse 13. The word wise and the word understanding, the word for good life, and then even the word humility. Unpacking those words will help us get what this passage is all about. The, the concept of wise, um, it's, it's a sense of moral reasoning. It's the ability to, to not differentiate between fact or not fact, but to, to differentiate between good and not so good, to reason, to show the application of moral understanding. And then he uses a, a different word, the word that is in, translated in my Bible, understanding. And here it comes from the Greek word that we get epistemology from. It's the idea of, of the study of knowledge. Here is intellectual knowledge or factual knowledge. This is where, where uh, we, we get the concept or the idea that there are facts and truths that we should know. If we're going to be wise, we need to have moral understanding but we also need to have a, a series, a, a, a backlog, a, 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 a closet full of knowledge, factual, intellectual knowledge. Now, our world puts a ton of emphasis on the knowledge part. What, what do you know? Um, what have you learned? Um, we have IQ tests, all kinds of IQ tests. There's a, there's a funny story about me about IQ. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, because I was such a rug rat in, in elementary school, they kept skipping me for, for, through grades. So I started school before I was five, then I skipped half of the fourth grade, and then I skipped all of the seventh grade. And each time they did that, the intent was to shut me up, to, to make me more controllable in class, to not be taking over in the ways that I was. And the idea was, you know, we'll, we'll challenge her a little bit. So I, I kind of had the idea by the time I went to college when I was 16, that I, I probably had a half-decent IQ. But to my knowledge, I'd never taken an IQ test. I, I didn't know. I didn't care. It, it wasn't a big deal. Years and years later, in fact, uh, uh, a week or so before my mother passed away, I was probably, I don't know, 30, 40 years old. I don't remember when she passed away. But anyway, uh, we were having a conversation, and somehow it got around to testing the kids. Oh, I know how it came up. I was... Uh, remarking that one of my brothers always thinks he's not as bright as the other two siblings, which is silliness. And I said, you know, it's not like we've all taken IQ tests and we know. And she said, 
I know. And I said, you know my IQ? And she goes, yes. Now, in my mind, it was a week and a half pause while I was thinking, do I want to know? You know, I've always thought I was kind of bright. I wonder, what if what I thought was true isn't true, and it's, you know, 46? Uh, it, anyway, it probably was a nanosecond, and she blurted it out. And I just sat there and laughed. I thought it was just hilariously funny that, that my mind was doing all this other stuff, and here came a, a set of numbers. We, we look at numbers like it has some significance. I saw a different kind of test. I actually like this one. It was called the grit scale. And what gets measured on there is it's the evaluation of a person's passion or their perseverance. Don't you think that there's more in life that can be accomplished when someone's grit scale is up there as opposed to they just know a bunch of book learning kind of facts? What, 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 what James is trying to say is that if, if you want to know who's wise, we got we to put two things together. we got to put the ability to morally reason our way through and throw in some factual facts. And then he says, we're going to see that by their good life. Look at, uh, look at the latter part of that, or the second phrase. Let them show it by their good life. Good life meaning a life spent well. A life spent doing good things that there is evidence of moral goodness in this person's life. My uh, dear first pastor, whom I call my spiritual papa, died yesterday morning. And uh, he's been very, very sick the last few weeks. About three weeks ago, I drove over to Phoenix and saw him. And uh, I've known him, my goodness, 50 years, I think. Uh, when I first got saved, he was my, my pastor. And, and uh, a lot of funny stories about him. Very, very, very conservative, but, but if you were to find a, you could not find a more faithful man of God on the face of the earth. And I've, I've told him that a dozen times, but one of the things he was struggling with towards the end of his life was whether or not he had spent a, a good life. And I said, you know, Satan's just trying to steal your joy here at the end of the race. Let me just, let me just reiterate how many, how many churches, how many people's lives, not, not that it mounts to a numbers game, but just the, the impact, the influence, the way your life was spent in front of other people. It was a good life. It's not a life that, that's spent in a certain house or with a certain economic standard or, or any other worldly standard. It's a life spent well. And then, and then he says in this passage that when that happens, let them show it by their good life, by their deeds done in humility. What, what kind of a life? A life that's spent in humility. You know, there's all kinds of voices in the world. Uh, you know, the Epicureans, the Appetites uh, folks would say, be sensual, uh, be sensuous, enjoy yourself. Education might say, well, be resourceful, expand yourself. Materialism, it would say, hey, be satisfied, please yourself. Psychology might say, be confident, fulfill yourself. Um, pride might say, well, be superior, promote yourself. But what does God say in this passage and other places? Be wise, humble yourself. The person who has this good life is a person who has the ability to exercise true humility. The word for humility in our Bible is sometimes translated meekness. Uh, King James called it meekness. 
And that's really a very poor translation of that word. It is not milk toast. This, a humble person is not someone that is lacking in confidence and, and, and melting into themselves in a sweet little wallflower. Um, it, 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 it is translated in the New American Standard as, as gentleness. Uh, I, like, I like the translation humility. I like the idea of humble-heartedness. Now, this is an interesting word, even in, in, in the use of our Bible. Mark and Luke and John, they never use this word. It's not in any of the Gospels of those three. Um, and, and Matthew, on the other hand, absolutely loves this word. If you remember, let's turn to it. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, when he's giving the Beatitudes, what does he, what does he say about this, this term of humility? Matthew 5, 5. He says, uh, blessed are the meek. There's that word. Blessed are the meek, for they will what? Inherit the earth. If, if you'd like a, a position of some responsibility in the world to come, if you want to be productive and, and useful for all of eternity, then we need to work on our humility, on our meekness, on our humble-heartedness. Turn to chapter 11 of, of Matthew, and this is the one and only place in our Bible where Jesus actually does a self-description. And how does he describe himself in 1129? He says, take my yoke upon you, learn of me, for I am here, wait for it, gentle, and here comes our word, humble in heart. Now, the, the humbleness that's here, it, again, is not the, oh, don't look at me. It's not Eeyore. You know who Eeyore is? Yeah, okay. It's not Eeyore. It's not, it's not oh, you know, uh, I'm not sure if I got, it's not an act of weakness. Sometimes we take the word meekness and think it equals weakness, but, but that's not the term here. In fact, the, the, the whole idea is illustrated in the life of Moses. And in Numbers chapter 12, Moses is, is, is considered the humblest of all leaders. Well, he was not a milquetoast kind of leader. He's a dynamic, strong leader, but a leader under the power of God. So, so the illustration of this word might best be by captured in thinking about wild stallions. Uh, I, I, I knew a guy one time that went out and, and captured them out on the, prane, uh, on the plains. And we were talking about how, how do you know which one you want? And he was talking about what you can see in their eyes and you can see this and their behavior, all of which was lost on me. But the point was is that he didn't choose the very submissive horse. He grabbed the horse that was wild and strong because he knew if he, if he would break him in the proper way, all that strength would come under control and then would be useful to him. That's the idea of, of humility. It's strength under control. It's someone who's, who's gone to the Lord and said, Lord, you gave me this ability, that ability, this strength, that, this, this weakness, this talent, this whatever. I want it to be all under your control. Now, now use me. And that strength is, is, is illustrated in, in the behaviors and the attitudes and the things that you get involved in. You're, you're not losing any of the strength. You're not losing any of the vigor or, or the dynamicness of your life. You're just allowing God to direct it. The, the proof that someone is wise, according to God's perspective, is somebody that, that, is, that is found to be biblically humble. 
and not just humble in words, but there's no arrogance about them. I have a friend who we joke about uh, her arrogance meter. If it's a, a large group and she walks into it, you know, she can almost go, mm, over there, three o'clock, guy with the black shirt on, mm, arrogant. You know, she hears a little bit of whatever and boom, 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 the, the Geiger counter is going off. Maybe, maybe you're good at that too. I'm not as good at that, but I have to admit, like most everyone else, it is very distasteful to be around someone that is arrogant. You know, you, know, you don't want to pop the balloon. You know, you know, is there some way I can get you to shut up? I'm not enjoying you at all. And in kindness, you wouldn't say that, but the, the, the opposite is what we want. We want our mind controlled so that we're demonstrating that, that humility. God wants to see every strength that he's given us, but under control, under his control. Not sitting in the corner going, I don't know, I don't... I can't help. I don't have any ideas. I don't have any ideas. I'm looking at my friend Brenda. I, I, I couldn't possibly. Oh, yeah, you could. If God gave the ability, the strength, the opportunity, the networking, you came along at a certain time and in a certain people's lives. Yes, use all that strongly. But, but make sure that it's under, under, const, under the constraints of, of his control. Now, in our passage in James five or James three, rather, he's going to outline two kinds of wisdom. In verses fourteen through sixteen, he's going to talk about uh, what what your Bible probably calls false wisdom or worldly wisdom, and then and then he's going to and then come down in verses seventeen and eighteen and contrast that with true wisdom. He often in the Bible, God often gives us a negative example first, and and that's what happens here. He starts in verse fourteen. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote-unquote, does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Now again, James is practical. He's talking about what we do in our life, not what we say in our life. And he's saying that this worldly kind of wisdom, it's going to get demonstrated by two things. Two things are going to pop up. One, we're going to see the opposite of humility. We're going to see bitter enviness, envying someone, a resentful attitude, almost a, um, a demand to be recognized. So when someone is humble, when they've taken their strengths and put it under control of God, they're not standing there making noise about it. They're just going to use it in the appropriate time and in an appropriate way. But the person that's, that's filled with bitter envy, that resentful kind of attitude, they're looking for a way to, to hold up their sign. Look, look at me. Woohoo! I am something. I'm all that in a bag of chips. I, you know, whoa, I. You know, it's a conversation that somebody mentions something and they go, oh, yeah, I, when I... How many times have you been in a conversation where you want to go, could you just be quiet? We're talking about her. We're not talking about you. I don't care how many times you've been to the Amazon. She, this situation, this, this bitter envy, this, this resentful attitude, this demand to be recognized, it's all part of that selfish ambition to, to, to stand out. Go to a sports team. The truly great 
players have a humility about themselves. They let their stuff show. They don't have to mouth it. They're not the guy in the locker room making all the noise. They're not, they're not running around with you know, all the superficial kind of uh, constraints. They're just letting their behavior demonstrate who they are. A real leader doesn't have to say, oh yeah, I'm the, I'm the head here. They'll figure that out in about 13 seconds when they see how you operate. Bitter envy is a way of saying, no, it's a, it's a demanding, hey, look at me, hoo-hoo, here I am. And the other way that he says this worldly wisdom demonstrates itself is in strife. Strife. Next week we're going to talk about uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Highlight, it's not a fun lesson, but I, I, I offer it. Anyway, strife is another way that this worldly wisdom gets demonstrated. It's a struggle to have our own interest. It's a struggle to put ourselves at the top. It's a, it's a struggle to get personal glory. He don't miss the fact that I did this, or I was involved in that, or, oh, I was on that team, or I, I'm part of that house to home. I'm one of the leaders. I, I, who cares? Worldly wisdom has to have that kind of attention. Now, he says in his text where, where this stuff comes from. And he makes it very clear, it does not come from above. So we all know um, John uh, 3.16. Uh, For God so loved the world. Wait a minute, I want to I quote one before. John 3, what is it, 3.3 3 maybe? Hang on, let me turn so I don't mess you up. Because he uses the same word uh, from above. John 3. Yeah, uh, John 3.3. 3. Jesus replies to Nicodemus, very, very, or very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And if your Bible is uh, worth its salt, it'll have a little note, and it'll say that this word again also means from above. You must be born from above. It must be a spiritual birth. It's not a worldly birth. It's not a, the birth that where you came out of your mother's womb. This is, a, this is a birth from above. It's the same word that James grabs here and says this wisdom we have, it comes from above. It does not have its same source. Uh, it, it, rather, it has its same source as, as being the fear of the Lord. I don't know why I have not in my notes, but it's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse number 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And fools... Fools are the ones that despise wisdom and instruction. We, 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 when, when this person that's sticking their fingers in their overalls and, and kind of crowing around, he, he's saying, you know, I, I've got wisdom. No, it's not, it's not godly wisdom. It didn't come from above. It's earthy, he says. I love that word, earthy. What he's saying is it's ordinary. It just belongs here on the earth. You know, the things that really matter to us are, are, are extraordinary. They're spiritual things. They're things that give us a glimpse of who God is or what a relationship in glory is going to be like or what love's really like. When we, when we have those moments, it's a taste of heaven. It's a taste of our, our relationship with God. He's saying, no, here's the opposite. This kind of worldly wisdom is very earthy. It's, it's, it's very ordinary. It's sensual. The, the word here is, is almost, na it, it's, it's natural or naturalistic. It's almost, it almost gets to the point of being animalistic. 
this worldly wisdom, it's just the works of the flesh. You know, anybody could do that. Anybody with a, with a half of a brain can say this or do that. He's saying that just comes as part of the flesh. That's the body. That's the brain. God gave it to us. Um, what's fascinating to me is he's saying this worldly wisdom that so many of us rely on. We got this education. We have this, the, these character qualities. We have this IQ. We have this grit. We have this determination. We have these, these components. The problem is, is very often they just reflect everyday life, everyday stuff. Not stuff that matters or lasts for eternity. And then he describes it as devilish. He's, he's trying to say, wait a minute, this worldly wisdom doesn't come from God. It's coming from the other source of supernatural power. There are only two sources of supernatural power. One is God and the other is Satan. And he's saying worldly wisdom, that which so much of our world relies on, really is reflected in its, in its originator, which is Satan himself. Ephesians chapter 6, I want you to turn there. I've got a lot of verses for you to look at today, but I want you to see who we really wrestle with when we find ourselves, uh, you know, disagreeing in the context of this worldly wisdom. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse number 12. 6.12. Well, let me just back up. You know the passage. It's called the armor of God. We're supposed to be strong in the Lord and his power. We're supposed to put on, in verse 11, the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against what? The devil's schemes. He says, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our argument is not against the, the, the stuff we see, what we think we're having an argument with. Really what we're doing is we're wrestling with Satan and his boys. And he's saying worldly wisdom comes from there. Worldly wisdom is always going to be self-centered. It's always going to put us in the best light. Am I going to come off looking really good? And that's the opposite of what we want. The, the, the real consequences of this, James goes on to say, is that there's going to be confusion and disorder. He says, this is not good. You're going to find disorder in every evil practice, the tail end of verse 16. Confusion or disorder. It's the opposite of God. God is the God of order. Proverbs chapter uh, 26, verse 28, I, I put in your notes, it talks about a flattering mouth works ruin. There's nothing uplifting about it. God is not the God of confusion. He is the God of order. When, when, we're, when we're finding ourselves in a spinning mess, which is what I've been in this week, I, I have twice, in the middle of, of something I was doing, stopped and, and just laid my head down on my desk and prayed and said, God, this is ridiculous the way I'm reacting to this. This is disproportionate. It's not appropriate. This is not good. I'm in a spinning disorder and confusion, and it isn't of you. When you find yourself that way, and you're in the car, you're late for something, you're gritting your teeth, and, and you just feel yourself spinning out of control, just, just have a word with the Lord. I know this is not from you. This is, this is me relying on something that I shouldn't be relying on. And then he talks about how 
not only is, is, is it likely that we'll find ourselves in disorder, but we'll find ourselves doing every evil practice. It's the, it's the, the fruit of, 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 uh, of those activities is in essence spiritual death. If we follow worldly wisdom, do this, do that, you'll get ahead, you'll get at the top, you'll be seen as, as successful, you'll get the mother of the year award, you'll get the this, you'll get the that, you'll get the these. If we follow that with, 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 with precision and with energy, and that's what, what uh, motivates us, in the end, there's nothing. There's nothing. As opposed to what he's now going to get into in verse 17, which is the following of true wisdom. Look at verse 17. But wisdom that comes from heaven, from above. And then he tells us what it's like. He said it's first of all pure. And then it's peace-loving. And then it's considerate. And then it's submissive. And it's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and it's sincere. And he says, the bottom line, then these peacemakers, these peacemakers are going to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So true wisdom, wisdom that comes from above, it's not earthy. Proverbs chapter 2, verse number 6, the Bible says, For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. You got a big decision to make? Yeah, you're going to consider all the, the facts that you can garner around you. But ultimately, you're going to sit down and you're going to say, Lord, what, what should I do? I, I've got this opportunity, that opportunity, these things, that things, these are at stake. I've, I've sought some good counsel. But Lord, I really need to hear from you. When someone is pursuing that kind of wisdom, it gets demonstrated. You can see it in their life. Almost a little checkoff list of, of seven things. You know, put them on a three-by-five card and, and run around in your home uh, or, or in your family relationship. So the next time you're having a conversation with someone, you know, go through the little checkoff list. Well, here, here, here's how real wisdom gets demonstrated. I love the first one. It's pure. It's pure. It's, it's really the, the root of this term means to be unmixed. It's not tainted. It's the idea that it's free of self-interest. I don't get anything out of this. It's not on my behalf. This isn't going to make me better. This is for you, for our family, for our work, for our church, for, for my, my position. This is for the people. This isn't what makes me comfortable. Very often, the, the joke in a home, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy, the, the reverse is usually true, though. Mama's the one that's not getting her, her due. Everyone else is. But, but it's because she's, she's demonstrating a, a lack of, of intensity of focusing on herself. She's focusing on others. Don't you love to be around those kind of people? The, the ones that are so self-consumed, you, you kind of want to swat them. You kind of, could you go away? I don't really want to be near you. But, but the person that demonstrates this, this pure heart, you can't get enough of them. If you're in a home, that's, that's who you want to have relationships with. You want, want dad to have a pure heart and mom to have a pure heart. You want the kids to be raised in that way. It's not all about me. Real, real wisdom, living your life according to God's wisdom, starts off by, by having a, a sense of purity. The second one is they're peaceable. 
They're peaceable. Turn over just like two pages to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 11. Look at this verse. This is the context is people are suffering because they're doing good things. He tells us not to repay evil for evil. And in the midst of, of referring to a verse here, he says, they must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. When you go running in the back door of a, of a harassing night, you got the kids from school and you ran, ran to ball practice and then you ran by here and you got something for dinner and you ran by the house and you ran in and we got homework. And we got, that whole, you all know what that is. I used to say the 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. are the bewitching hours. I, I turn into some strange person. When, when, when we're demonstrating that our, our wisdom, the way we are living our life, has, has the, as, as its focus, peaceableness, we're, we're going to be focused, we're going to practice, we're going to look for ways to, to share peace. We slow down our speech, don't talk so fast. You know, if you have to take a few deep breaths, you slow your breathing down, you get out of the car a little slower, you stop, you put your arm around someone, you give them a kiss, your husband walks in the door, you don't say, hey, can you get the one and I'll get the other one in the way? No, there's a moment. Hi, honey, I love you. How was your day? There's, there's, there's a pursuit of peace. There's some practicing of it. And then, and then another idea is the idea of yielding. Yielding your status or yielding, yielding you, you know, you, you, you resist the, the, um, the desire to say, well, when is it my turn? When do I get? Where's my? How come I didn't? And instead you turn to the other person or persons. There's a peaceableness to you. The third word he uses is they're considerate. They're open to reason. You and I are not living in a, in a considerate world right now. People are not open to reason. We are so stuck in our corners. Doesn't matter what the topic is, we're on that extreme, one place or another. We don't have conversations. I tell you what you think, or I think you tell me what you think. That's not being considerate. We're open to reason, even from our kids. Well, mom, I really want to do the first, and then I'll do my homework. You know, the usual, you know, homework first. Well, I don't know. One time? Could you do it the opposite? Probably. No, we're not going to have pizza again. Is it going to kill us if we had pizza? If it created a peaceful atmosphere in our home? I mean, Costco's a buck and a half for a hot dog. I mean, you know, consideration. The next one's submissiveness. I love this word. Christian women hate it because they think that, that the Bible is teaching some sort of subordinate uh, attitude that makes you less than your husband or less than the men in the world or less than, less than, less than. It's, it's not that way at all. It's the idea of being willing to yield. Now, in uh, Hawaii, I'm not going to Kauai, which is my favorite island, but if I was, I would go out on the North Shore, my favorite place, and to get there, you got to go down this little hill and you got to cross a little bridge to get into the little town of Hanalei. Anybody been there? You know where the little bridge is? All right. It's a one-lane bridge. And on one side of the bridge, there's a big sign that says, Yield! And then on the other side of the bridge, guess what it says? Yield! So if you come down the hill and you get to the bridge, 
you're going to yield to the guy on the other side. Now, what if you both get there at the same time? What if both of you have the attitude of worldly wisdom? I've got rights. I was here first. It was a nanosecond, but I was here first. Fine, head to head on a narrow bridge. What, what's, you know, what, what's going to happen with that one? On the other hand, we very reasonably look at that yield sign and say, yeah, that's for my best interest. That's so the two cars don't smash into each other in the middle of the bridge. I'm happy to yield. You, come on, no problem. That's what submission's about, is the happy yielding. Not to, mm, you know, I got rights. This is not an evaluation of my rights. It's a, how do we have a peaceable world? How do we have a lovely evening? How do we promote peace in our home? We yield. And then he says, they're full of mercy and good fruit. Full of mercy and good fruit. They're actively meeting the needs of everyone around them. They don't just plop down at the dinner table and expect everyone else to bring them a fork and bring them their dinner. The kid that says, Mom, can I set the table? You grab your heart. It's like, <coughs> yeah, you can. Don't you want to train your kids in that? You train your relationships with those around you where there's a, a constant flow of mercy and a constant flow of good fruit. I got that covered. I'll take care of that. Here, let me. He goes on to say they're without partiality. Partiality here meaning they're unwavering. They have a single-mindedness. They're absolutely focused on the things of the Lord. They're not double-minded. They don't have one foot in the world and one foot on spiritual things. They're all in. I'm all in. I took the dive. Plunged in. Swimming with them. The problem with our world is we want it all. We want the world stuff and the fun of that, and we want the blessings of the Lord. And so we tend to do this routine. A little of this and a little of that and a little of this and a little of that. And then people come along and say, wait a minute, our Bible doesn't work that way. Our Bible says, without partiality, the, this kind of wisdom says, I'm not going to be double-minded. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, nah, that's probably some entertainment I ought not to be involved in. Nah, that's a behavior. I probably, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. Nah, when I hang out with them... Uh, my attitude just goes to pot. When, I, when I'm around them, I, I, I dive into the gossipy, slandery thing. I should probably not hang with them. Those kinds of choices are, are things that we do so that we're not double-minded. And my favorite one of this list is the last one. He says in, uh, in James 3 that, that we're supposed to produce this, uh, this mindset of wisdom from above... And it, and it comes out in sincerity. Sincerity. The word sincerity, it's a Latin word, and it just means without hypocrisy. Sine means without. Without hypocrisy. The word came from uh, people that made clay pots. And so let's say they were making a vase or a pot, and they were making it out of, of clay, uh, of some sort of a clay. And they, they would make it, they'd put it together, they'd get it all done, and then they'd see a, 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 a goof, maybe a crack, maybe a little chip missing, maybe, maybe it just isn't right on this side. And so they would take wax, and they would dye the wax to get close to the color, and then slide the wax just right over the, the top of the, the defect. And then they'd offer it off on as if it were a perfect uh, vase or a other instrument made out of, out of uh, clay or plaster. It's the idea of being without wax. 
the sincere person doesn't have any wax. I'm not trying to fake you out. I'm struggling with this over here. I didn't slick a bunch of wax on top so it looked like I got this all covered. Because you know I'm perfect. Because I'm a Bible teacher and Bible teachers are perfect. Didn't you know that? Ha, ha. The sincere person is warts and all. Not, not like they're, they're glorying in their war, warts. Not like, you know, war stories this last weekend. Well, I just tied one on. Oh, but I'm going to try to do better next week. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But I'm just trying to say, it's a person that says, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that. Hey, I'd appreciate it if you'd pray with me about that. That's an area in my life that I'm trying to give some time and attention to. Without wax. No, we're not trying to fake it out. We're not trying to cover it over. This person that, that is seeking wisdom in their life, godly wisdom, they're, they're, they're going to hold up under pressure because the real stuff is there. Warts and all. So what does it all result in? James says if that's the way we demonstrate the focus of our lives, we're going to come out as peacemakers. Peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Just contrast verse 16, you know, with verse 18. So the guys that are struggling with their humility, that have this envy and selfish ambition, where are they going to end up? Disorder and every evil practice. And on the other hand, the guy who's working on, on, on having a, a spirit that's pure and is peaceable and is considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and without wax, this person, what do they get? A harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers are glorious people. The, the examples of peacemaker in our Bible, there are a couple of really good ones. I'll, I'll leave their story for you to go look up. But, but think about Jonathan and David and how Jonathan tried to protect his friend David from his dad. Who want, he wanted to be a peacemaker between Saul and Jonathan. And look at the things that he did specifically to protect his friend. He wanted to be a peacemaker. He knew that his friend was, was falsely being accused. So when you're in a crowd and somebody's tearing somebody apart verbally, let's say, do you stand up for your friend? Do you go, wait a minute, that's not, that's not the person I know. Those are not the qualities that I'm aware of. Hey, this isn't going to build them up. Or, 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 or do you let it just happen? The peacemaker is the person that, that is going out of their way, much like Jonathan did, to protect and encourage and build up his friend Jonathan. And the other example is Abigail. Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. She's married to a nut job. She is. Correct? Read the story. And, and, and he is such a nut job that, that when David asks for some help, he goes out of his way to, to, to tell him, no, I ain't helping you. And so David is about ready to wipe him out. And Abigail, in good sense, as a peacemaker, steps up and goes, whoa, wait a minute. There are more people involved here than just my dumb husband. We've got all these people that work on our farm. And so she steps, at, steps in to be the peacemaker. She gathers food and, and wine and all this stuff and runs out to meet D uh, David before he could get there. Whoa, whoa, whoa sorry, 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 sorry. This, that's not what uh, Can we help you? Peacemakers are active. They don't want to see things blow up. They don't want relationships to blow up. 
If they can, they're going to step in with, with kind words or activities that will soothe things over. So I ask the question here, so what? So we've gotten a handle on there's two kinds of wisdom. We, we really understand that the wise person is known by all those qualities. What, 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 what do we learn? And, and the learn is the answer to the question. Who's controlling your mind? Well, if we let the world control our mind, we're still going to double bat and be so focused on ourselves. If we let God's word control our mind, hmm, that's a different story. Who is wise? Who's the person that you call and you want some, you want some advice from, you want some guidance, you want some counsel from? Is that a person that's, that's arrogant or is that, is that the humble among us? It's the one who seeks peace, who looks to bring people together, to encourage, to build up, to edify. Romans 14, verse number 19, I put them in your notes. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. People do all kinds of weird stuff to get peace in their life. That's where all of the abuse and the addictions come from. There's a turmoil in a, a person's spirit, and, and they add an ingredient to, to, to provide some peace. But I, I read a weird one, somebody that did something really, really strange in order to get peace. It, it's, uh, it's at the Winchester House in San Jose. Have you, have you been up there? It, it's, uh, yeah, you ought to go see it. Uh, Sarah Winchester, the widow of the guy that made the gun company, the Winchester company, um, she lived in that house for a whole 38 years, from 18, uh, uh, 1884 until 1922. And, and here's the thing. She felt guilty about people that were being killed by her husband's uh, weapons, e even though, you know, she was part of it. But she felt, she felt somehow guilty, and, and she was haunted by the ghost of people that ghosts, quote, 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 ghosts, that were killed by her husband's weapons. And so for whatever logic that somehow she arrived at, she, she felt like if, if the house was constantly being built, it wasn't finished, that, that the, the bad spirits of all that would leave her alone and she could have peace. And so she just kept adding to that house. And if you've been there, there's corridors that don't lead anywhere, doors that open and, and, and it's a, clo a closet of one inch thick. Uh, it, it's just strange. She just kept building, building. There are 10,000 windows in it, doorways and stairs that lead to blank walls. There's 160 rooms. So for 38 years, she just kept spending what in today's money would be about $70 billion. A lot of money. Excuse me, not B, M, million. Uh, in a desperate attempt to find peace. Jesus said, my peace I give you, not as the world does. So guys, James is saying here's some practical ways to be not only peacemakers, but to pursue peace ourselves. And that's to have the wisdom that comes from God. It's based on humility. Tough lesson, but sure applicable. Let's pray. Father, I don't want to be like Sarah Winchester. I don't want to 
constantly be in movement trying to find peace in strange ways. I want to just settle into your arms. I want to nestle down in your presence. I want to sense you being uh, so there that the events and activities of life can be endured and encountered with a sense of peace. And I realize that it starts with an attitude of humility. So I pray, Father, you'd help every one of us to put you first, others next, and us as a distant third. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you. Y'all have a blessed day.